from VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jamal. It's the VinePair Podcast. Joanna's not here. It's like old times. Azores. My God. Where are the Azores? Do you know? All I know is that they're off the coast. So I know two things about them from what people have told me. That they're off the coast of Portugal and that they're the Hawaii of Europe. That's all I've ever heard anyone say about them. I know that they're like, I think, quite far off of Portugal. Like, I don't think it's one of these like, oh, take a ferry from Portugal. I think it's like fly an hour and a half from Portugal. Okay. So I, they're not close. They're like in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, basically. Gotcha. And I've been looking at her photos and it definitely is not what I expected. It looks much more rugged and tropical than like islands I think of when I think of Europe, right? We think of Mediterranean islands that are, you know, it's really, it looks crazy. And I think everyone's, as Joanna said, right, you go there to hike and stuff. So Mm -hmm. seems like a a thing that they're doing, which is great. We'll have to ask Joanna when she gets back what she drank, even if it's not on a Monday podcast, because I'm very curious what drinking culture in the Azores is like. Me too. Like, is it Portuguese wine? Like, yeah, probably. You think that anyone's cultivating grapes? Interesting. I mean, they certainly are in some of the other Portuguese islands, like, you know, Madeira and stuff. But totally. No, but the Azores, I think, are further north. I don't know. We'll find out. Our our ace reporter is on the scene. So we'll we'll have more info for you folks. Totally. But speaking of drinking, Mm -hmm. what are you drinking? So um, I've had a couple of things that are of interest, I think. Um, The most exciting thing for me was having a few different um, expressions of the. 2017 vintage of Brunello uh, de Montalcino. Um, my cousin, who also works in the wine industry, came over a few days ago with uh, some bottles, and we tasted a few, um, including a couple of different bottlings from uh, Altacino, which is uh, one of my favorite producers in the region. Mm. Uh, and, you know, Brunello, as I think we I've shared on the podcast before, is certainly one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite varieties and, and a, a style of wine. I guess it's not technically a variety, you know, a style of wine made from Sangiovese. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I enjoy it quite a bit. And it's always fun for me to taste, even if weirdly, despite Caitlin generally liking Italian wine, she's not a huge fan of it. But, you know, whatever we make do. Um, (laughs) And then I think the only other thing that I had recently that I think is, you know, moderately interesting is so after uh, the episode we did on Friday about the Dirty Martini, I've been sort of like thinking about that conversation and a little bit intrigued by by the concept and some of what kind of was hinted at in that conversation. We didn't get too deep into the sort of like. Uh, conversation around dirty martini riffs, but I have been playing around with like, what are some other kinds of brine that one could add to, uh, you know, sort of the basic martini template or essentially mm-hmm. just gin, really. Um, so I've tried a little bit with uh, some a couple of different kinds of olives that we have in the house. Uh, I tried some uh, with some uh, pickle brine, and weirdly, despite how much I think I, I thought I would find this adventure interesting, I've really come back to the fact that like. It's actually just like the the Castle Vetrano olive brine that I like best, and I haven't really found the other ones to be that enjoyable. So it was kind of a surprise to me. I thought I might find them each appealing in their own way, but it's really only the pickle brine for some reason just has not landed with me. I think there's something yeah. about the flavor in there that just doesn't work for me. Not my maybe some people like it, but I don't know. <laughs> so people, How about you? people like pickles. Um, I like pickles fine. I just, just in a and I like them as like cocktail garnishes fine, but somehow the pickle juice in the drink just isn't working for me. No, I feel that. I feel that. I've I've made someone a pickle brined version of a dirty martini before, um, and it was they enjoyed it. It wasn't for me. It again yeah. felt like I was just drinking pickle juice. Um, so for me, uh, not a ton. I but I did do two things this past week that were pretty great. One is I um, celebrated 
Josh's birthday, who's the co founder. Happy birthday, Josh. Yeah, had him over for dinner and opened um, a bottle of the Chateau Montalena anniversary Chardonnay for the 50th anniversary or 50th birthday or whatever we're calling it, Chardonnay, which was really awesome and fun because Josh loves Chateau Montalena and he loves Chardonnay. So that was a fun bottle to open. And then uh, over the weekend, I headed up to Beacon, New York and paid a little visit to Paul Brady. And Friend Paul, of the podcast. Yes. And Paul Brady Wine. And I got to say, man, it was fucking awesome. Oh, cool. First of all, Beacon has changed so much in the last few years. I feel like the last time I was up there after doing like a hike or, in you know, then going to Dia Beacon and whatever, there, there seemed to have been less sort of like, I guess, young people opening places than there are now. And I definitely think that has to do with COVID. Um, yeah. It just looks like there's a lot more entrepreneurs that have headed up there. There's a cool cocktail bar called Wonder Bar. Uh, there's like some really be- like cool boutiques. And um, and then Paul is sort of this sort of in the center of Main Street. So I would say equidistant from the train or from sort of this cool hotel called the Roundhouse. Um, and the you know, it's all New York State, which I think is really mm-hmm. unique and also quite challenging, to be fair. You know, he uh, because of the farm license that he's working with, he's only allowed to both sell in a wine shop, but then also serve at the wine bar and cocktail bar products that are made in New York State uh, and with New York State agriculture. It's a you know, New York State's d- created these licenses to sort of encourage uh, people to, you know, take advantage of the full sort of chain of production here in New York. So it wasn't just like, hey, we'll let you open a distillery, but like, hey, we'd really like if you distilled with grains going to New York or, you know, you can open a winery, but it'd be much better if you made wine with New York grapes than you tried to, you know, bring grapes in from California, whatever, like some some places have done. Yeah. And, you know, the wines are really good. The wines have gotten really good in New York. Uh, and so it was a it was a real pleasure. And I think he then has gotten really creative with some of the cocktails. Like I had some tiki cocktails that were uh, using sherry instead of rum because, of course, oh, interesting. You know, there's not there's not rum being made at least yet with New York State agriculture. Uh, so you could not do that. Some good whiskeys, um, but then the coolest wine I had from him was this wine from Six Eighty Cellars okay. in the Finger Lakes, and it was a Cabernet Franc that was semi carbonic. Okay, and apparently it's made by a pretty well known psalm. I uh, did not know who he was. He was from New York and he has since moved to Oregon. So like this wine will never exist again. And when Paul heard that, he bought like all 40 cases wow. uh, <laughs> that were left of the wine. And he's been slowly selling it because it, it really is pretty spectacular. And, you know, it's always he, he was talking about that just like for young wine regions uh, or up and coming wine regions like the Finger Lakes or Virginia or whatever. Like, you know, it's always a bummer when one of the more talented winemakers like leaves to go, find, you know, go make wine in. Oregon and Willamette or, you know, Napa or whatever. I mean, that's just always, you would always love to keep the people in that region. But I also get that when someone gets sort of notoriety, someone else comes calling and convinces them to move. Um, so we yeah. just had like sort of a conversation about that. Cause, you know, you usually think New York is the place where we have the companies that steal people from other places and get you <laughs> here, but, but not when it comes to wine. Right. So. Well, uh, definitely not on the production side. Exactly. Me. Exactly. So uh, it was a lot of fun though. I mean, I, I know we, we we have a great interview with Paul if you want to go back and hear it from uh, a few months ago where he talked about opening the spot and making his own wine as well. Just really awesome. I just I loved seeing 
it in person. And anytime you get to meet like a fellow entrepreneur, it's a ton of fun. And we got to chat about just business and all that good stuff. So that was what I did this past weekend. Very cool. So uh, as a follow-up to, so we've got a lot of reaction already to our Monday of last week's podcast about just the the batshit craziness when it comes to, the, you know, the Major League Baseball and vodka. Uh, and so I thought it would be fun to sort of take a larger look. We teased this on the last podcast at sort of sports marketing in general. And, and I have a, you know, a statement I'd like to put out there and and have us to react to, Zach. And that is, is the sponsorship by alcohol companies of professional sports the last great space to actually guarantee mass market returns when it comes to consumers seeing the brand and actually turning around and buying it? So this is a great question. And ever since we've sort of posed this topic, I've been thinking about it a lot and doing a little bit of research. And I think the answer to this is a sort of qualified yes. And for two reasons. One, I think that some of what we're talking about here is a part of the way that sports have remained in American culture less, not completely, but less touched by so many of the changes that have, let's say, removed or at least greatly limited some of the other traditional places for um, not just, you know, kind of partnerships and branding, but also, frankly, just advertising. And one of those changes is a sort of broadcast change. So I think for if you're any kind of brand that wants to be seen, you can't help but look at the ratings that live sports still gets and the fact that it's, you know, pretty immune to some of the, you know, not all of the DVRing and fast forwarding and ad skipping and stuff that you see with so much other content, but it is more immune to that than pretty much anything else because most people who care about sports want to watch them live. You know, if your team has a big yep. game, you're not going to DVR it and watch it the next morning or later that night just to avoid ads. Whereas most of us, you know, I don't know your TV viewing habits. I mean, I know a lot about them actually from the podcast, but in terms of when in time you watch things, I imagine you're like most of us, which is like you stream stuff whenever it's convenient for you. And it, you know, if there are ads, you know, depending on how you acquire that content, you know, you might have to sit through some ads, but for the most part, you're just not as reachable a target for advertising as people used to be. And I think the other piece of it, and, and this is maybe hard to define, but I do think is irrelevant, is that sports remain a less politicized place than most other parts of contemporary American culture. And I think for certain kinds of brands, that is important. You know, we talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago when we talked about the sort of Americana design of Budweiser and how heavily they lean in and many other brands lean into that. And sports carry, especially certain sports, but but all sports to some extent carry some of that same valence, right? They are seen, I don't know if as non-political, obviously they have lots of political dimensions and, you know, there's a lot to be said about the many ways in which when we say non-political, we're really kind of betraying a certain bias in ourselves. But I think for most people who are, or a good chunk of people who are sports fans, they are not as concerned about politics in any form when they are consuming sports content yeah. and whether that's the politics of the league or of the individuals participating or even the politics of the advertisers that is i think also attractive not just because of the what the politics of the of these brands might be but also just 
it is a, a space where I think you see buy-in or interest from across the political spectrum. And that is so untrue of almost anything else mm-hmm. in modern American culture. I think the other thing about sports. So, you know, if you read anyone who's smart in terms of marketing strategy for the last few years, the thing they keep saying is like niche, 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 right? Like you're supposed to do, you're supposed to advertise with publications where like the audience is already down funnel and you, you know, like you're not, you, you know that when they read you that they're not super far away from taking the action of purchase, right? So the example we've given before is like watch brands advertising on the publication Hodinkee, which is kind of the cool hip like watch publication, kind of the Vine pair of watches. <laughs> and, you know, if someone who's reading Hodinkee is much more likely to be in the market now or very near in the very near future for a watch. Someone who reads Vine pair goes without saying is probably going to be in the market for alcohol in the next day or so. Right. So that's sort of been, and then you, you work with sort of influencers and things like that as well, because the argument a lot of people make is that in mass market, like advertising, it's hard to know whether or not someone's going to be in the market for that product anytime soon. So for example, like billboards are sort of a mass market advertising, right. In driving down the highway, you may not know if every single person who passes that billboard is going to be in the market for X, Y, or Z in the next day, week, et cetera. The only thing that probably works for still billboard advertising is things like McDonald's, right? Because someone is going to eventually get hungry and you put <laughs> that that idea in their head. But not everyone who's driving at that moment is going to be hungry. Um, you know, if we talk about things like the New York Times, et cetera, right? There's so many different people who are coming to the Times with with different values with different ideas with different needs right so buying ads across the entire publication may not be 100% useful besides aligning yourself with the brand the thing we know about sports is that once people are over 21 they drink and they drink when they watch sports and so that's mm-hmm. why i think the this is becoming sort of the the one mass market thing that everyone is is going towards because it is you know tailgating and drinking during sports are still one of the most constant pastimes in the U.S., right? The mm-hmm. sports bar is a fixture when it comes to the type of bar we have here in the U.S. There are probably more sports bars than everything besides, huh, maybe Irish pubs. Like there's there's just so many sports bars in the U.S., right? We, we know that we go almost every bar that decides not to be a cocktail bar knows they have to have a large TV or two in their bar, even if they're not a sports bar that has the, you know, the NFL ticket package, et cetera, to play the games on Sunday, to play basketball games in the local market. Because if you have a TV, people are going to ask you to put sports on it. Yeah. Right. And so I think that that is why these, these companies are really smart to be going after getting, you know, aligning themselves with sports. Again, it's not the only way to to market i think it's you know which is why you see the big people doing it because they have budgets then to spread across everything else but i think that's that's what it's going to get even more competitive because Mm -hmm. it really is the last thing that really works because i can't think of another medium that reaches literally hundreds of millions of people every single weekend or a week during the playoffs or during march madness or whatever that is touching enough people that are drinking quite like sports viewership. Well, and I think an important thing to mention here too is there's a way in which advertising with or co-branding with sports leagues, teams, etc. is maybe also a way to walk a middle path between the two kinds of advertising that you were talking about. And, And by that, I mean, you have potentially large reach, which is important. And even if, you know, you know, you don't know that everyone 
seeing your your advertising, your co-branding, whatever, is going to be in the market for whatever your product is, you are reaching a lot of people. And you're reaching a lot of people who, in some sense, are indicating by their interest in a given team, a sport, etc., that they have a certain way in which that kind of entity helps inform their own identity, right? We think about think about how many people we probably both know, you know, you mentioned on the podcast last week, uh, your younger brother, who's a big Braves fan, and I'm sure he owns, you know, Braves hats and shirts and wears them regularly, even when he's not going to a Braves game. Um, I mean, I do the same thing with, you know, Seattle sports teams, and yeah. many, many people do. And I think there are a lot of those people who would see purchasing a product that is identified with a brand that they already like as being an extension of the lifestyle they lead in, I guess, conjunction with that brand. I mean, we think about some of the, you know, the things again that we've mentioned on, on that last week's podcast or, or in other podcasts where, you know, we talk about the connection um, with, um, you know, like Conor McGregor's fans and his mm-hmm. whiskey or the connection between um, the NHL and, you know, New, New Amsterdam, et cetera. And, I think MMA and Modelo, et cetera, right? Like there are all these ways in which people are making, or if you know that the the fan base is going to drink, which we think we've already established and is not a big shock to anyone, no. uh, you know, in aggregate, obviously not everyone, but, but in aggregate, you can probably direct some of that purchasing towards your product just by association. And that might be pretty hard to do with almost anything else because with with some exceptions, I think you could be a really big Star Wars fan or Marvel Cinematic Universe fan, but like there's not going to be probably a Star Wars brand tequila. I mean, I, fuck, I don't know, man. Like the world is crazy now and maybe there will be, but it seems unlikely to drive purchasing behavior in the yeah. same way that, you know, what you would be buying there is like you're a person who likes tequila and there's a you can buy a tequila that comes in, you know, Darth Vader's helmet or some shit like that probably exists. I'm, I'm probably describing <laughs> a real product. Um, there definitely are some like skull shaped, uh, you know, spirits bottles already. But point is, that's a little different than being the official, you know, whatever of pick a sports team or sports league. And that perhaps driving purchasing in a category that is, you know, kind of saturated and where garnering some of that loyalty is really valuable to some of these brands. Yeah. I mean, like, look, you look at, if you look at where other brands have advertised in the past that are like mass market, right? You have people, you know, aligning themselves with the Oscars or the Golden Globes, which now we don't talk about anymore. Right. But I would argue that while some people drink while watching them, I don't think that it's like, it's not a drinking occasion. You know, you, you have, reality tv and people are like we're the official sponsor of bravo or whatever and like again i think some people drink while watching those shows i don't think that everyone does you know it's really hard to think of a cultural moment that happens in the u.s where almost everyone who is of legal drinking age and enjoys drinking right so i recognize there are people who abstain who doesn't drink while watching sports and the only other connection you could make but this is why sports is more powerful is live music because yes at concerts people drink but no one is also watching that concert on tv while people are at the concert drinking like this is what makes sports so incredible in terms of the thing for these brands to align with which is why they're paying top dollar for it and i think it'll be really interesting to see how someone like 
like Gallo, because I think Gallo's the main brand they've sponsored the NFL with this year is going to be barefoot. It'd be really interesting to see like how they take advantage of that. And if they're able to get the same sort of loyalty that I do believe, you know, Budweiser has built over the years through, you know, its partnership. I, I believe Crown Royal is building right now through Diageo's partnership. Like, Will wine fit in there as easily or will people say like, eh, not so sure. Or if I am drinking wine, I want it to be higher end than barefoot. Like, I think that will also be really interesting to see. But yeah, I mean, I was just thinking back to even like my myself. Like I think probably the only time I ever drink Budweiser once in a while is watching sports. Mm-hmm. Like because it's either at the, you know, it feels like something you're supposed to do. Like you're at the bar and you're like, eh, I'll have a Budweiser. Sure. Or, you know, you're at a tailgate like, oh, yeah, I'll have a Budweiser. Like we're about to go watch football. And I think that's because the brand has connected itself so deeply to sports, especially to football. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I my, my question is, like, is it every sport? Is it just the three majors? Plus, I, you know, it's, it's interesting you mentioned MMA because I think that's really true. I'd forgotten about the, Mor- the Molson partnership there. But, like, look, I mean, it seems like right now I don't watch it, but we hear Joanna talk about it a bunch that there's, you know, a lot of people are, are rushing into sponsorship of Formula One. Mm-hmm. Um, and that people think that and that's cool. like a perfect example of where the the sort of identity association might be more valuable because like mm-hmm. I think the thing that'd be very interesting to hear whether I don't know if uh, you know at some point in the future we can come back to this and Adam you can say if you've heard any of this or certainly listeners you know you can email us podcast at com if you happen to know anything but I would be curious on some of these deals whether you know the concessions rights you know you talk about live music yeah. and there the real value is of course the concessions rights at these venues, you know, whoever has the exclusive contract with Live Nation for whatever things, right? They're making they're all their money is is just sales, right? And that's a hugely valuable thing, obviously. I mean, these companies, ex, you know, are trying to sell their product, of course. And with these sports um, deals, I think it's it's multiple outlets, right? It's the in arena, in stadium mm. sales, which definitely matter, and in some cases, you know, especially with you know very popular teams with with sports that have a lot of Uh, games like baseball, you know, there's a volume thing there that matters. But it is all the other sales that go along with it, whether it's as you mentioned, for tailgating or at sports bars, or all these things that are kind of associations with it. And and sports, I think offers that in a way that, you know, as you said, nothing else really can because it creates this these drinking occasions outside of the venue um, that are pretty hard to create otherwise. And so that to me is is where I think the question of kind of where the value comes for these companies is hard for me to parse because I don't have the numbers. I don't have the information on that. Um, But I do think it's where you have both the sort of advantage of some of these really big deals where, uh, you know, having that kind of visibility is really important, but it's also where I think in even individual team, local deals and stuff like that can actually be very valuable because you can, you can build loyalty. Again, it's, it's, it's about building that, connection of you know sports fans again have already shown a a very a very strong uh, propensity for a kind of brand loyalty i mean what Mm -hmm. else is sports fandom than brand loyalty um in a way and if you if they can tap into that existing brand loyalty be it for seattle mariners baseball or auburn football whatever the case may be that's going to be a powerful thing that they hope to harness and of course not purely alcohol companies do that obviously these these sports teams and leagues have all kinds of sponsors all of whom are hoping to tie into that but not as many of them connect to the kind of social experience of the sport as directly as drinking does yeah and i think like look i think there's two things that are really interesting i have a prediction but i'll make it at the end but i think one is that what's interesting about sports is that depending on the sport and this is where i thought you might be going it can unlock different types of brands yeah so like 
barefoot works for the NFL. The NFL is like the is the every person league, right? That's sort of like what it tries to be, anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, so therefore, you know, it really that that is why sort of Budweiser Crown barefoot work there. Formula One is a luxury league, right? Yeah, Formula definitely not a barefoot wants, league. Yes, and it wants to be luxury, right? So you know that's why you see. Patron there. There's LVMH brands there, like people getting really into like the really high end brands being there because they want you to obviously drink, but they think you're having a different drinking experience when you're watching Formula One because you're watching Ferraris drive around the the, the race course, right? Same for like, you know, Wimbledon or here the US Open, like Grey Goose is a massive sponsor of the US Open because it's, you know, a luxury vodka. I don't think that it would work as well if you saw Tito's as the sponsor for the US Open, but people think, you know, Grey Goose has this sort of like French high-end persona to it. So it feels like it fits with tennis, which is a country club sport, right? And so those are, I think, all the reasons and everyone at all these sporting events drink, right? It doesn't matter. Lowbrow, highbrow, it works. Now, my prediction is the other thing that's currently happening in the the climate that we are all watching, especially if we we watch college sports, is NIL deals. Mm Mm-hmm. And the fact that we're we're creating super conferences, right? So you know, the for UCLA and USC to be leaving the basically the Pac-12 to head to the Big Ten, that's crazy. And SEC continuing to get bigger, nuts. And I think as these leagues get bigger and bigger, you are going to start seeing a lot of them say, you know what? There's way too much money on the table from alcohol. We need to start saying that it, we're okay with it. And I think that a lot of universities are just going to say it is what it is. Maybe we serve it in certain sections of our stadium. We don't serve alcohol in every section. But like just so people are aware, in the high roller suites of these stadiums, even stadiums that say they ban alcohol, they've always been serving alcohol. Because if the donor is giving enough money, they're letting them drink (laughs) during the games. So I think they just open it up and all of a sudden you're going to hear Diageo has become the official spirit sponsor of the SEC. Or, you know, maybe it's a large regional Backed, you know, craft backed by a, a major. So maybe it's like Lagunitas becomes the official sponsor of the Pac-12 or something. But I definitely think that's going to come very soon because what these leagues are all trying to do is combine in order to earn more and more and more money. Yeah. And th- this is too much money to be leaving on the table. For sure. Well, and I think it's, you mentioned NIL deals and stuff like that. It'd be fascinating to see too, you know, at some point what happens if you're a 21 year plus athlete and spirits brand wants your nil rights like yeah i would imagine i i am not an you know that invested in college athletics at this point and i don't know the deal probably at the moment you can't do that but it would be harder to do that if your conference or your college is taking in you know tens of millions of dollars in alcohol sponsorships for them to say to you you can't do that if yep. you're of legal age obviously you can it's a different story if you're 18 i think that's a understandable difference but but once you reach a legal drinking age, it seems like, why wouldn't you be able to, you know, endorse whatever legal product you want? It seems like you should be able to. But again, you know, college athletics, a very weird realm that I uh, only slightly pay attention to. But I think you're, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you're wrong. I think your kind of supposition on this is very uh, likely correct, in part because, as you said, it's become, from my understanding, something of a, you know, of an arms race and any of these revenue streams yeah. that can be tapped into are going to be explored by someone soon if they're not already. And if you look at market dynamics, it just it it makes sense, right? We smart markers will always do two things. You should always be going as niche as possible and you should also be going as mass as possible at the same time. Right. So as the the mass that works 
continues to get crappier and crappier, right? No one's really looking at these mass, you know, uh, display deals that people buy anymore, right? We know that uh, what 40, 40 plus percent of people who are on the internet run ad blockers. No one's seeing these display ads. You know, the, the mass market television advertising is not working. We're all going to streaming. We're skipping, you know, we're paying to skip commercials. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I don't really think it, like I said, I don't really think it works around these other major cultural events. Like you just, you don't have the same ingrain. So you're going to go niche. You're going to work with niche publications and influencers, et cetera, in the space. And you're going to go mass to sports. And when you go mass to sports, there's going to be a lot more brands fighting over a lot less opportunity, right? There can only be one official wine sponsor of the NFL and that's barefoot slash Gallo. That means that that's locking out a lot of other very large wine companies that might've had the same sponsorship dollars and ability to sponsor as Gallo. We know that was happening in beer forever. That was what people were complaining about the Anheuser-Busch. That's what we've, you know, we know is happening in spirits. There's a lot of other brands that probably could afford the Diageo deal, but Diageo, you know, outspent them. And that's just the nature of how this works. And it's within the NFL's interest and within major league baseball's interest, et cetera, to have one official sponsor. Yeah. Right. They can sell it for a lot more. And so we do the same thing here, right? We have one official tequila sponsor for the month of May. We only have one tequila brand that runs on our entire site in the month of May. Why? Because we can command a premium for it. That's just how things work. So that's why I also think college has to be coming because people are going to look to something else to put their money in. And yeah. college football is pretty is almost as popular as NFL, especially in certain regions of the country. It's more popular. So it has to be coming soon. This has been really interesting, Zach. Uh, we, I know we got to knock sports on the podcast. Like, I know. Twice in a, two, two Mondays in a row. I know. God, it's like my dream come true. <laughs> uh, let us know what you think. Podcast at VinePair.com. Do you have a specific sport that you watch and do you associate that sport with a specific alcohol? Really curious. Did did watching sports at all cause you to drink a specific alcohol? You know, what do you think? <laughs> about this? I mean, definitely watching certain sports has caused me to drink, but well, yeah, but know, that's I'm a long-suffering Mariners fan. So, but that's so. also a good point that like this is one of the <laughs> only areas of culture where we accept and say it's okay for your team winning to cause you to drink and for your team losing to cause you to drink. It's almost like a, a an excuse, point. right? Which again goes into why people think it's acceptable to advertise in such a large way on sports. Yeah. Really, really good point at the end there, Zach. <laughs> Snuck it in right right before the uh, <clears throat> final buzzer, I guess. Yeah. Hit us up, podcastdivinebear.com. Let us know what you think. Zach, will be joined back by Joanna on Friday and I will see you then. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.